Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. I guess today is label exec Shandan Horan. First of all, let's talk a little bit about Spotify playlists. I think everybody kind of accepts the fact that playlists are now more powerful than radio, especially Spotify playlists. There has been a study that found that if you were to get a placement on today's top hits, which is a Spotify playlist, it would be worth about $163,000. So that's pretty good, and that's why everybody wants to get on various playlists on Spotify. The only problem is not all playlists are created equally. Some playlists, even though they may be large with lots of subscribers, may not get you as many streams as maybe something that's smaller. So an example of that is something called Mint. It's an electronic music Spotify playlist. It has about 5 million followers. A couple other ones, Pop Rising and Young, Wild, and Free, they only have between 1.1 and 1.5 million followers. And yet a placement on either of those gets three to four times more streams than on Mint. It turns out that wide genre playlists really don't generate all that much in terms of streams and engagement. And the other thing that's been discovered is that people don't unfollow playlists. They may not tune into it, but they don't unfollow it. So as a result, you have some playlists that seem like they're huge, but there's not all that many people that are engaging with it. So you have to be careful about which playlist you're actually on. And why I bring that up is in case you're paying for this or in case you're searching out a playlist curator, you have to be careful that in fact you're aiming for the right list that's really going to be helpful to you. There's actually been some studies that have discovered that people will say they listen to the songs on a particular playlist, but in fact they don't. So now there's something that's been created called the follower to estimated listener ratio or FEL. And now you're starting to find a lot of record labels that are actually looking at that. So it's kind of interesting the way it's all going. The one thing that's absolutely positive about all this is the fact that indie acts get 50 to 90% of their Spotify streams from either Spotify or personalized playlists. So they're really important and it's something that you really have to concentrate on. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Just a heads up that my new book, The Music Business Advice Book, will be available on August 7th. It's comprised of 150 immediately useful tips compiled from the interviews from this podcast. You'll be able to find the book on Amazon and most other online book retailers, as well as a bookstore near you. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I reported on some rumors that I heard at GearFest about JBL Pro and the fact that Samsung may be ready to dump it or do something with it. And at the very least, there were a number of engineers that were being let go. I've heard from some people at JBL telling me that wasn't true at all. Now, they didn't describe exactly what wasn't true out of all that, just the rumor actually wasn't true. All I can tell you is that the people that I talk to at GearFest are very plugged in. They've always given me right information in the past. And I really don't have any reason not to believe them. Now, sometimes they actually know more than what's going on inside the company. So that could be a case. But on the other hand, maybe they got it wrong too. So I just wanted you to know that, in fact, a rumor that I told you about 
you have to take with a grain of salt and just see how it all plays out. Now, music and audio manufacturers are increasingly being owned by private equity groups. And this is especially true recently. And there's a couple changes in the industry that kind of illustrated that. Loud Audio, which up until recently owned Ampeg and EAW, Martin Audio, the speaker company, Crate, Blackheart, Tapco, and of course Mackie, they were bought last year by Transom Capital Group. And Transom Capital Group already had a number of music-oriented manufacturers that they had rolled up. Band Merch is one, Cinderblock, Heath Zenith, Blast from the Past there, Top Spin, another blast from the past, sort of. Blue Microphones, Summit Audio, and also Loud. But they also owned a number of sports-related companies like Bravo, Nutcase, DNC, ProTech, Sector Skateboards. It's kind of odd when you have a company that has such a diversification. Now, I understand why they diversify, but on the other hand, sports and music don't exactly go together. That being said... Recently, Loud sold off Ampeg to Yamaha. That's probably a good thing because Yamaha really needed something in the bass amp line because they didn't really have something that was really strong in bass amps. And now with Ampeg, it's a really good brand, and I understand they're going to treat it with respect. So it should be pretty cool. Last week, Martin Audio, the speaker company, was sold to LDC, which is part of the Lloyd's Banking Group. So now we have one investment group buying a audio company from another investment group. You kind of scratch your head and you think, hmm, why is this happening? Well, obviously they see a way to make money one way or the other. The only thing is we kind of worry about, and this is everybody in the industry kind of worries about, okay, someone's cashing out and someone's making money in this, or they think they're going to make money in the long run. In the meantime, you have revered brands and people that have worked for them for a really long time. And you just keep your fingers crossed that nobody gets hurt, and especially the brand stays around. This is the case here. Martin Audio, if you're into sound reinforcement, you know who they are because they've been making loudspeakers for a long time, especially in Europe. They're bigger there than they are here. That being said, they're well-respected, and we kind of hope that everything keeps on going as it is because, again, you get a company that's been around for a long time and builds up a reputation, and you like to see it continue if possible. The other thing is that everyone in the audio industry really prefers to deal with mom-and-pop companies when it's all said and done because we want to go talk to the people that own the company when we go to a trade show or call them on a phone. We like to know that the people in charge are actually listening to us. That being said, the business isn't moving that way. The business is moving more corporate, and we just keep our fingers crossed that in the end, it's all going to work out okay. In other parts of the industry, it has, and we hope in this case it will too. So all I can say is just keep on looking behind the scenes how all this stuff is happening because it does eventually make a difference on the products that you purchase. Shandan Haran has spent the last 10 years breaking bands during his time at Century Media Records, then as president of Artery Recordings. He's now the head of Outer Loop Records and still has a huge passion not only for finding and breaking new artists and bands, but helping the ones he doesn't sign as well. In this interview, we talked about what he looks for in a new band, the importance of social media and the most pertinent platforms, and the toughest lessons for newly signed bands to learn. We spoke via Skype from his office in Arizona. The last time 
we spoke for the podcast was even before Artery, I think. Yeah, I think it was back in the uh, Century Media days, man. That's ancient history right there. <laughs> yeah, so a lot has changed since then. Tell me about Outer Loop and what your gig is there. Absolutely. So um, essentially what I did was I, I joined Outer Loop uh, Records. So it's basically kind of uh, similar to my previous stuff where, you know, the Artery Foundation was a management company and a record label. And they, they brought me in at the previous one to run the record label side of things. So basically at Outer Loop, um, I'm the president of Outer Loop Records. So I basically handle, you know, everything uh, relating to putting out the releases and such. Well, that's cool. But that being said, you're more hands-on than most label executives that I know, and especially with newer acts. Oh, absolutely. I know that you have a soft spot for new acts that are trying to get signed. Has that changed? No, no, <laughs> that hasn't changed at all. I, I honestly feel like you know, nowadays record labels can't really have the luxury of, of one person wearing just one hat, you know, like... For me, I get really involved in terms of everything from the video side of a release to A&R to actual physical distro. Um, and that's kind of just like the way things are now, you know. Uh, I feel also like, you know, with record labels nowadays, it's harder for a lot of bands to get developmental deals um, because, you know, labels kind of would like to stick with artists that have solid sales history, um, which is unfortunate. But I, I definitely have a soft spot for bands that haven't reached their full potential that I see, you know, that there's something there um, that they just, you know, a label just hasn't tapped into. And I, I feel like that's the soft spot that you're kind of talking to talking about is like me, you know, getting involved with unsigned artists versus, you know, labels that traditionally don't go that route anymore. Yeah. Yeah. What have you learned since the last time we talked, you alluded that you've amassed some new knowledge here. So fill me in. Yeah. So, I mean, here's the thing, like music industry is always adapting. It's like, it's very visible too. like, you know, you and me are on, on the same page and getting great conversations about, you know, how back in the day, you know, it was about physical media and now it's kind of pivoted into, you know, streams. But before that it was MP3. So you constantly have to adapt and just learn more and more about, you know, how to break bands. But um, I mean, since, you know, I started working in record labels, uh, you know, a decade ago, my tactics have, have definitely shifted completely, <laughs> you know, where traditionally, you would put out an album a certain way and now you would do it completely the opposite. So, Okay, that being said, before we even get to albums and, and releases, what makes an artist attractive to you? An uh, attractive artist to me is something that's, you know, very unique and different. A lot of times, you know, in, in the past at least, I've, I've seen, you know, tons of artists that you see a breakaway artist, you know, where let's say it's like the boy band phase where there's, you know, five members of a group, they're pretty, pretty boys that sing and do choreography. You know, when that takes off, you see, you know, labels just signing that kind of stuff, you know, 10, you know, five piece artists that do the same kind of thing. It's, it's almost a cookie cutter formulated, you know, response in the industry. But, you know, what I look for is something unique, you know, something different that while it might sound similar to some things, it has some unique, innovative edge. That's always what I, I have my eyes out for. And, you know, also, I, I tend to over the past 10 years to, to kind of have a new outlook where I, I really refine my choices of bands based on the members themselves. So, um, you know, it's, it's tragic, but a lot of releases that, you know, or a lot, a lot of album albums from certain bands and stuff like that didn't see their, their full potential because 
some of the members uh, were disillusioned of how the music industry worked, you know, where, you know, I, I hate to say it, but let's say I signed, you know, an 18 year old, you know, young, young band. They think when they get signed to a record label, everything's, you know, paved in gold and, you know, you're good to go and don't have to do anything. And they kind of take a back seat. Nowadays, I, I really look for artists that, you know, are hustlers that, you know, don't mind getting their hands dirty with me. And then we, we basically, you know, work very hard together and make a, a really substantial release. Okay, that being said, do you have to like an artist or band in order to sign them? And the reason why I say this is, you know, it's always been an adage in the industry where you don't get signed for your music as much as you get signed for your audience. So if you have a line around the block, that's more important than anything. How do you come at that? No, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's that's where you see certain people get signed. Like, what what's that that girl uh, that was on? what dr phil's show <laughs> bad bad barbie bad oh, whatever right right yeah you recall her yeah, yeah people you know i saw people spouting off on the internet where they were saying you know how how dare she get a record deal instead of my band and all that stuff it kind of shows it's like yeah i mean obviously you know her following and the the viral hit that that took was very beneficial on a sales capacity where a label saw that they're like look at all the eyeballs on her and sign the band um you know strictly based on that for me i mean it, it does play a a role in an artist like obviously if you see somebody that's you know doesn't have a built-in audience you know it's, it's going to be harder to break an artist but um looping back to your initial question i i would think that you know at, at any any point in time if you sign an artist you really do have to you know like what they sound like and enjoy them to believe in it you know i've, I've seen in the past where you know let's say NANR signed something and the label, the rest of the label didn't really believe in it. It doesn't see the attention that uh, it, it deserved, you know. So I'm very adamant about signing stuff that I actually love. How important is social media? Is it any more or less important than it was, let's say, a couple of years ago? Well, social media, I, I mean, in my opinion, I feel social media is still very, very important for any release. But, you know, the social networks that matter have kind of you know, changed a bit. So, you know, back in the day, it was MySpace, you know, probably when we had our conversation in, you know, around the century media era of my career, it was like, you know, everybody's got to go to this new site, Facebook. Yeah. Now it's kind of changed where Facebook, you know, has limited the uh, the outreach of your posts and stuff like that without paying exorbitant, you know, marketing uh, cash fees and stuff like that. Whereas other networks have, have started kind of taking over where, whereas like Instagram, you know, they just enrolled a new feature where they actually have Instagram TV. So they're trying to tap into the video formats. But me personally, I kind of always adapt with what is effective and what's not. And I've seen that, you know, Instagram story posts or Instagram, you know, posts are a lot more effective than my Facebook stuff lately, at least. Um, so yeah, so social networks are definitely, you know, uh, very powerful in terms of breaking artists and getting the word out there, but they always kind of change. I mean, even nowadays, um, Spotify has kind of become a new social network, if you will. I mean, it's less social, you know, and, and more of a, uh, sharing type, uh, formats, but I've seen Spotify, you know, where there's cultivated playlists and, you know, uh, groups that are that de- you know that are following a dedicated genre or topic that really have the power to break artists more than you know a myspace or a facebook would a big social presence by an artist or band make a difference to you and would the platform make a difference if they had let's say 
a huge number of YouTube views and not much of a presence anywhere else or, or vice versa on, on any of the other platforms. Yeah, I mean, it, it would definitely make a difference um, in, in my opinion of the artist because, I mean, primarily, you know, let's say an artist has 100,000 followers on Facebook. Realistically, you know, we can maybe expect to hit a small percentage of them with a post, you know, out of those 100,000, you'll get three to 15 interactions, you know, on a post unless it's a, a really viral post. Um, but the thing about, you know, our modern social media society is, you know, me as a label, I have to kind of comb through genuine, uh, legit um, subscribers and followers versus fake, you know, profiles and stuff like that. I mean, it's very common for me to see somebody with a huge Facebook, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of followers. But, no, you know, at, at, at that moment, as I look at it, I, I notice that they're all from, you know, uh, yeah. Middle Eastern countries or click farm central right, right. hubs, you know, so. It's funny because you can game all that anymore. Anytime someone looks at this and labels have been doing this forever, it's starting with MySpace where you go, wow, there's a big following in there. So let's go sign this artist. But then everybody sort of catches on and, and finds a way to game the system. And after a while, then that's a whole lot less effective for anybody. It's funny. They always say, you know, fake it till you make it. But in a yeah. situation like that, if you if you fake it, it, it might actually cost you significant real you know, exposure opportunities. But no, I mean, it, there, there was a heyday of, of that when MySpace and Facebook and social networks started really becoming the next deciding factor for artists in, in their hype slash momentum. You know, a lot of labels were picking up artists based strictly on how many numbers they had. But, you know, it, it got really, they, they were really quick to understand after a bunch of botched releases where, you know, an artist it has millions of followers on a social network and they only sell 500 CDs, you know, a lot of these labels, you know, learn the hard way after investing all the marketing cash and, and funds, expecting this to be a, a really, you know, a legit indicator of success. So now a lot of a lot of labels, I, I would say primarily all labels really wised up to that and are a bit more strategic about, I would say, organic reach versus strictly number based subscribers. You know, you just mentioned about an album, and let's go there for a second. Is the album any less important to you as a record label and an artist, for that matter, given the fact that we're in the streaming age where singles seem to matter a whole lot more? Totally. The whole landscape has shifted completely. You know, before, it was very pre-order-driven pre where you, you would get, you know, 10 or 15 tracks and put a pre-order bundle together and you know, hype that up for a few months. And that was how you released, you know, albums. But, you know, nowadays, just like you mentioned, you know, we're, we're sitting at a, a weird precipice where it's more about single driven marketing because, you know, as, as most people know, you know, 1500 streams is the equivalent of, you know, a full album sale. So basically now if you, if you take 30 singles, <laughs> like a, a SoundCloud rapper and space it out over the course of a year, you're going to get a lot higher of a positioning um, than you would if you just released a pre-order album. Yeah, that's one thing that artists don't seem to understand. I, I've been trying to preach this for a couple of years now, the fact that how the landscape has changed so much in that the scale of everything has changed, where a million 
used to be a lot of something. You know, if you had a million yeah. singles, a million albums, whatever, that was a lot. But now in the digital age that we live in, a million is just scratching the surface. And we're really talking about tens and hundreds of millions for a hit here. Yeah. So I don't think artists quite get that, at least the ones I talk to. Have you found that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a weird disconnect as well because... You know, now we take, you know, let's say a, a single that we used to make 99 cents or on or $1.29 on iTunes, and now it, it, it equates to 0. 0.00 whatever cents. You know, it's like the the scenery of the music industry has, has changed to be a, a less profitable one. I mean, you can still make money, but I don't think bands see the grand scheme of how big of a difference, you know, that makes now. So um, essentially what I have to do on, on the regular. And I'll be honest with you, Bobby, I get this, this call and emails from bands all the time. You know, they, they're like, Hey, we got, you know, 500,000 streams on Spotify. Where's our, our big check? You know, <laughs> I, I punched in the numbers and we're owed, you know, 70 grand. <laughs> and then I walk them through it and they forgot to add a couple of zeros and do their math. Correct. You know, and it comes out to like $500 max, you know, <laughs> and it's like, it's a little depressing, but I honestly, I'm kind of excited about it, too, because really, you know, the capacity of of making it, you know, can be a little streamlined. Like back in the day, if, if you wanted to listen to an artist, you had to buy the CDs or try to get it from some sketchy, you know, torrent site. Now, you know, it's so accessible to people. If you really do have a great single and it goes viral, I think that it, you would benefit a lot more than the old days, you know in that case. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing too. I don't think artists understand the many variables in streaming. In fact, there's a different pay tier depending on the the streaming tier, the streams that you have on on whatever Spotify tier and the via territory. Every territory pays a little differently. So people don't understand that as well. I don't envy you the fact that you probably have to have this conversation all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a new frontier, you know, it's like when YouTube started becoming a thing and, you know, allowing users to monetize their own videos, you know, it was like the Wild West. Nobody really knew how it worked or what was happening. You know, they just kind of, you know, went with it and started seeing some residual income without really understanding what exactly it was coming from or how, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I, I've actually had conversations where, uh, sorry, my phone's going off. I should be smarter than that. A lot of conversations I've had, you know, people didn't realize where money actually came from. You know, I had to explain to them, yeah, the ads in front of videos, in front of YouTubes are actually, um, you know, they pay to advertise and you get a cut of that. And it was like mind boggling. They had no idea. <laughs> yeah, they think it's just on views, but it's views against ad revenue. Even then, there's so many ways that you don't get paid on that, despite the fact that the royalty split is so low as compared to everything else. So, you know, people get disillusioned when they're not making a lot of money, but they don't quite realize why that's happening, I think. And again, it's the whole yeah. scale thing. You know, that when there's, as you say, 500,000 or a million, people think they should be making a million dollars. It doesn't yeah. work that way at all anymore. Absolutely not. I mean, I've, I've even heard artists, you know, we, you know I've, I've had debates about, you know, uh, like a perfect example, you know, let's say an artist is like, well, I don't know about streaming. It doesn't pay much. Like I'm, I only want to do a physical, you know, release with MP3s and <sighs> stuff like that and skip Spotify. And then I have to kind of explain, well, you know, the, the duality of it is if you're not on Spotify, you really don't get the exposure of, of new fans, you know? So it's, it's more an exposure 
you know, versus payout situation. Like I get it. If you're Metallica or Taylor Swift, you know, you could say, oh, hey, all, all of her catalogs not on Spotify and people would still purchase it, you know. Um, but as a developmental band, I think that that's def- definitely a death blow. Is Spotify the main distributor that you're worried about? Does Apple Music or Amazon, for that matter, or anyone like Deezer, do they matter in the grand scheme of things? I honestly don't see, you know, Deezer or ironically Napster, you know, or or these smaller ones as a huge contender. I mean, I obviously get royalty payments from them, but it's very small. What I do see is a sleeping giant that is Apple Music. You know, with Apple Music, they pay more royalties, you know, to artists. It's it's actually night and day different um, compared to Spotify. And then on the flip side, you know, Apple Music is seeing a huge influx of people starting to use their streaming services. You know, I've, I actually I'll be honest, I've never used Apple Music. I'm always Spotify person. But in my data and all my royalties that are collected you know, from releases, it's actually pretty 50-50 split nowadays mm. between Apple Music and Spotify. Whereas, you know, I would say maybe seven months ago, it would be Spotify number one every time. Apple Music, maybe a third of that. Yeah, I just saw an article the other day that said that Apple Music is actually slightly ahead of Spotify in the U.S. in terms of paid subscribers, which blew my mind. Totally. It's, it's, that, it's a sleeping giant. I, I would have not expected that. But I do forecast and I'm, I'm actually very good about, you know, kind of uh, seeing the future of things and where where stuff's headed. I honestly feel like Spotify is going to create some kind of label based model for themselves. Right. I mean, how how much power if you corner a streaming market where your Spotify, you know, cultivated playlists are at the top, which they've done. I mean, they used to feature Spotify playlists from independent users back in the day and then they cut all that out it's only official spotify playlists those things hold so much power for artists it could be a make or break so i mean me just thinking in my business mind why wouldn't spotify create artists sign them and give them you know number one treatment on all their playlists that's essentially free money well yeah and they made the first step by beginning with direct deals oh absolutely now that being said i think you've probably noted that Tencent is about to do an IPO, a U.S. IPO, Tencent Music. And my prediction on this is Tencent is going to turn around, use that money, and buy Spotify. Really? Oh, wow. They already own 10%, which they bought at the end of last year. Actually, it was a, um, a stock swap. I'm thinking that that's what's going to happen because the Chinese really need a legit way to get into the music business perfect way and spotify you're seeing a lot of the execs that are jumping ship right now and i think they seem to think that there's something going on that would be my prediction i honestly think that that would be feasible i you know as as you say it 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 doesn't sound like an unrealistic thing (laughs) you know if it happened i honestly wouldn't be surprised yeah okay all that aside now you sign a new band you're really excited and bands in the studio coming up with some great material what would be the marketing campaign that you would come up with? And I, I realize it's different with every artist and every band, but generally speaking, is there kind of a, a release method that you have in mind? Do you kind of release things the same way? No, no. I mean, it, it really depends what kind of artist. It also really depends what the contract deal is. So, for instance, you know, let's say I signed a band as a one off you know, deal with really fair royalty rates, like, you know, a pretty standard in the industry is a 16%, 
17% uh, royalty rates for bands that sign things. I'll often do a 50-50 split with an artist, which is kind of like unheard of in a lot of capacity. So if it's a situation like that where it's 50-50 royalty split, you know, uh, with one-off album, you know, if, if we build them up to a point, they're free to go to a bigger one and upstream. Something like that obviously doesn't make sense to funnel a ton of money into. Obviously, we do funnel money into advertisement and marketing rollouts. But if an artist, you know, that we were developing over the course of three albums, let's say, you know, and we had we had it inked for three options with a 16 or 17 percent royalty rates, like I'm going to be I'm going to feel more comfortable about dumping more money into it. Right. So that would come with additional things, longer publicity, you know, blasts. Usually, you know, for publicists, I uh, contract one for three months over the course of a rollout, you know, for something longer uh, for an artist that I have multiple albums with, you know, I'd probably invest in, you know, six month rollout with a publicist. Um, other things, you know, really include radio. I'm kind of on the fence about radio. Obviously, satellite radio is very effective for me on my side, mm-hmm. but I, I might get slack for saying this or I might somebody might kick me in the butt for saying something about this. But with terrestrial radio, I've kind of, you know, got cold feet about utilizing it or not. You know, a lot of times it's very expensive. I mean, it's it's not unfeasible to spend one hundred thousand dollars on radio. Yeah. You know. Um, and in my head, you know, if I'm listening to radio and I hear a single and I'm like, wow, that song's really great. It doesn't tell me who it is on my radio. Yeah. Right. So I'll literally have to get Siri out say, Hey Siri, who is this? You know, whatever. I'll have to do a thing. If you're paying a hundred thousand dollars to terrestrial and not even getting, you know, posted on the thing, is it really that effective use of money or would that hundred thousand be better used in Spotify ads or YouTube in stream ads targeting similar fans, you know? Is college radio something that's viable anymore? It seems to have fallen into uh, a state of disrepair, so to speak, uh, compared to the the heyday of of maybe 15 years ago or so. But does it mean anything to you? I mean, it it depends, you know, which artists. I honestly feel like with college radio, I'll literally send, you know, X amount of CDs per college radio station. I've actually viewed a lot of them. or I, I've, I've actually visited a bunch of, uh, you know, college radio stations and I go and there's just a stack of CDs just thrown in a garbage can. Ugh. Right. Which is like very, you know, uh, discouraging. <laughs> Cause yeah. you're like the amount of money that you spend on sending all these station CDs and you're just like, Oh wow, this just went in the garbage can, yeah. you know? But, um, I actually do think it's beneficial if you're, you know, a band that would fit on like a college circuit, you know, because obviously, with colleges, they actually take everybody's tuition, like a small chunk of their tuition and throw it into these like entertainment, you know, war chests where essentially they book artists, Pam, you know, very generous guarantees to play college campuses and stuff like that. So, I mean, if you're going to do something like that, you have an in and you're getting paid to do these college tours. Yeah, totally. College radio makes total sense for me, though. I, I found, you know, a lot of these, you know, uh, local stations with like a you know, really great DJ host that believes in artists is way more effective. You know, I'll find artists, you know, uh, independent radio stations that aren't necessarily part of a huge, huge conglomerate uh, that will spin my stuff, you know, very often. And I actually see a return from that. They're still out there. <laughs> I didn't think there's any left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is. I mean, they're still still battling it out. But I, I feel like those, you know, those stations always do great because they're way more in touch with the local scene a bit, you know, you'll see them at local events and stuff a lot more often than you will, um, you know, the main, main 
corporate radio stations. You know, it's funny. I come from a very small area in Pennsylvania, and uh, Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania. It's basically in coal country. And the interesting thing with the local radio stations, and they're not connected to any big conglomerate or anything, they're stuck in the 70s still. And if you go back, you're still hearing the Eagles, and you're still hearing anything that was big in the 70s. That's what they're playing. And I scratch my head every time I think, oh, have you guys ever heard of anything that's, you know, in the 2000s even? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. It's, it's just amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's funny though. It's like some of the, some of the local ones, you know, I, I can, you know, at least vouch for Arizona, you know, there's, there's a great station in Flagstaff, Arizona that's called the Eagle. And there's a great station in Phoenix called KUPD. And, uh, those guys are actually more hip and on the level where I can approach them and say, Hey, you know, I got this new single, like, do you want to, you know, put it out exclusively? And they're like, yeah, hell yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> you know, and they'll, in it a bunch and give it a lot of love. Whereas I'll approach, you know, uh, the head of marketing at a station that, you know, they own 25 plus stations across a certain state or whatever. And it's got to go through so many, you know, chains of operation and submitted a specific way. And it usually never ends up just getting to the source as easy, you know? Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to our theoretical band. There's a new release. So what are you going to do? Are you going to do singles and concentrate on the singles that are going to Spotify and Apple Music and whatever and not worry about the album until maybe there's some traction on the singles or does the album get priority right off? So what I've been doing lately is actually kind of a combination of both. You know, I'm, I'm in this kind of denial phase right now where I, <laughs> I don't want to completely get rid of pre-orders, but, you know, I want to give uh, consumers the option to be able to get them if that's their preferred format. Mm-hmm. So basically what I do is kind of in unison, I have, you know, let's say a pre-order drop, you know, that's actually very long gated compared to normal rollouts. I mean, our normal CD release, you know, from pre-order to album release is over the course of a month and a half or two max. You know, what I've been doing is I'm, I'm utilizing pre-orders over the course of like almost pushing five months, Mm. right? So over the course of five months, I drop, you know, conveniently more singles on Spotify, you know, through, you know, iTunes rules. Uh, you're only allowed to have at most 50%, uh, you know, instant grats on your release. So if it's 10 tracks, you can have max five instant grads, um, which I, I still think is pretty rad. But what I'll do is, you know, from pre-order, I'll, I'll release one single, you know, like four weeks later, I'll drop another and another and another. And I'll just keep going so that I maintain having, you know, a few singles that you can only get if you pre-order the album. And then eventually, you know, uh, uh, everything will be added to Spotify. How do you find physical products selling? I know that there are some labels that are really finding no traction at all. And then there are others that are specializing in vinyl or cassettes or whatever it might be, even CDs and, and having some luck. How are you finding it? Well, I mean, def- sales definitely aren't as good as they used to be, but it really depends the artists, you know, what their demographic is. Some artists, you know, their fan base, they don't, they don't like using Spotify. You know, they want tangible products, so it still sells and you know, me as a, a label, I really have to give the consumers what they want. So I'll always have an option, at least for now, until things change. And it's like, oh, wow, we sold two CDs. Nobody cares anymore. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. uh, for now, what I, I have been seeing is, you know, yes, people do like vinyl. Um, but the the big pitfall I have is vinyl only works for specific artists. So if you're looking at a developmental band that's projected to sell, like, I don't know, just 
speculating 500 CDs, you know, on a good day, some, you know, somebody from their very first album, you know, you don't expect it to do great overnight. It's the course it's over the course of three albums that you see a band develop. Something like that doesn't make sense to get vinyl for because when you order vinyl and not, you know, not a lot of band, I, I swear, Bobby, the amount of bands I have that ask me, Hey, I want vinyl. Yeah. And I explain the process, you know, it really opens up their eyes and they, they, you know, understand the, uh, you know, problems with it. Now, uh, for vinyl, you, you have to get at least 500 usually. So there's a minimum order of 500, uh, to get them mailed. You know, a lot of the times these companies mail it from, you know, Ukraine and then they package up the materials in the U S and it just ends up very expensive. You know, it's not unfeasible, unfeasible to spend $3,000 or four just for vinyl, you know? So for me, you know, if an artist I know will sell, that really easy or I could do a limited 500 run I'll do it and it'll sell if not it's going to be a massive waste of money um as the vinyl kind of sits in a warehouse and starts warping because of the summer sun you know yeah yeah well not only that the time it takes to get vinyl together the pressing plant time is crazy so you might be getting the vinyl way past the window that you need it yeah oh yeah no if, if you want vinyl you need three months safe safe zone right there yeah yeah. Okay. Last question, Shandam. Mm-hmm. Where do you see the business going? I mean, if you look in your crystal ball and, and you know what it's like today and you have a really good feel for what happened before because you've been there, how do you see it evolving and where do you see everything going? I foresee Spotify being very powerful in the future. You know, I see them as the gatekeepers for a successful release versus a, uh, non-successful release. Um, I also foresee, you know, the, the label model changing, you know, what I, I kind of been seeing lately is labels are kind of conforming to almost like an artist services type situation where let's say an artist, you know, has clout and has sales history. They're a lot smarter and they don't really need labels to distro their music physically, which was the primary sales point of a label, you know, a, a label would, get your physical CDs in stores. Now that these stores don't carry CDs, you know, the label's power is a little bit less. I mean, I'm not discrediting, you know, me as a label, I still have my foot in the door for artists and bigger capacities with things they don't understand. But I feel like the future, a lot of these labels are going to be more so, you know, almost like a hired agency for the artist, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And and I see that happening as well. When you look at some of the forward thinkers, and I put you in that category for sure, you know, you're seeing the fact that things are changing and there's pressure on everybody to make this change right now, especially when you have Spotify coming and doing their direct deals and you know, that's only going to grow. So you have to kind of conform to that and be a value added agency beyond that. Yeah, I mean, Spotify essentially just creates their own money. <laughs> you know, it's like printing their own money. I mean, if you if you create a band or I mean, they had a lot of these conspiracy theories going around about these like, amb, you know, ambiance bands that were created. They had no trail to an actual real. You read that? Yeah. So yeah, essentially, yeah. you know, for, for your listeners, they uh, created, you know, these ambient bands that just kind of made droning sounds or like, you know, stuff to help you sleep or just stuff like that. So they invented these bands and for some reason they had millions and millions of streams and it came out to, they just got prime placement and all that Spotify playlist. So essentially if, if I had Spotify and I was like, Hey, 
you know, here's a hundred bands that I just created, you know, with a really lucrative deal on my side, I'm going to give them, you know, all the solid features. I know that I could create X millions of, of plays just by giving them the number one spot. You know, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. And, and not only that, I don't even think the artists that they had providing them got royalties. I think there were buyouts on top yeah, of it. Absolutely. Well, we live in interesting times and I'm sure happy that there are people like you around because you see the future as well as the present. And I think you live in it well as compared to many people that prefer to live 10 or 20 years you know, <laughs> ago. They're, they're <laughs> still thinking it's like that. Thank you, Bobby. It's always a pleasure, man. I, I love talking to you. You can find out more about Shandan on his Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Shandan, S-H-A-N-D-A-N, Shandan. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and now... Google Podcasts. At bobbyosensky.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.